computer. All right. All right. Well, hey, good people. This is Dan DeLeon. I'm the guest editor for the Spring Equinox edition of allcreation.org. Really glad to be here. Uh, selfishly, because I'm with my good friend, Rabbi Matt Rosenberg. This is a bit of a reunion of sorts. I'm going to introduce him to you more properly here in a second, but um, I got to indulge a bit and just share with you about why it means so much to me that the two of us are talking together because we've known each other for years. And um, Rabbi Matt lives out in Sacramento, but we met here in College Station, Texas, where he was serving as the rabbi for Texas A&M Hillel. Um, and I was and continue to be serving as a pastor of Friends Congregational Church. And we hit it off so well that we even had a podcast. So, Rabbi Matt, good to see you, my friend. Good to see you, Reverend Dan. Good to be here. This is the, the Reverend Dan and Rabbi Matt podcast reunion slash all creation <laughs> interview. Well, um, Rabbi Matt, tell us a little bit more about yourself and practicing as a rabbi out in Sacramento. would love to hear a little bit more about your vocational pursuits. Yes, so uh, I am here in California's capital, uh, the Golden State, and loving it. Uh, this is where I grew up. My family moved to Sacramento when I was four years old. It's great to be back. Went to college at UC Davis, not too far away. And uh, I'm currently serving as the executive director of the Albert Einstein Residence Center, which is a senior community uh, founded by the Jewish community back in 1981. Became executive director here uh, a year ago and uh, been serving as a community rabbi in Sacramento for, for a few years since I left Texas and uh, served as president of the Sacramento Board of Rabbis. Um, I officiate weddings and funerals and I teach in the community at a variety of synagogues, serve as a substitute rabbi when other rabbis are out of town and just uh, generally being of service. You got a lot of irons on the fire, my friend. You are aware as a rabbi that on the seventh day, one is required to rest. There's got to be. Oh, I, that's when I do all my reading and relaxing and I, I stay as horizontal as possible on, on Shabbat. That's That's what I do. Good for you. I'm glad you're taking good care of my friend. God, God rested and so should we. Amen. Well, let's get into that then. I was was wanting to talk with you in part about the creation stories from Genesis. But, you know, before we go directly to that, I'm just curious about um, environmental ethics, uh, stewardship of creation, taking care of the earth. Is there an environmental ethic in Judaism? And what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the, the theological underpinning of Jewish environmentalism is that God created the universe and therefore God has complete ownership over all of creation. And humans are God's partners in bettering creation. There is a, a teaching from what's known as the Perkei vote, the ethics of our fathers, which is from the, uh, the first collection of the oral law known as the Mishnah, codified around the year 200. And uh, it's in this collection of sayings and wisdom, um, similar to Proverbs, but you know, a little later than that. This is you're not obligated to complete the task, but neither are you free to desist from it. And I think of that in terms of our obligation towards the earth and the environment. Um, 
when we say our, our, our main blessing, you know, there's so many blessings in, in Judaism. Um, I'm thinking of uh, the, near the beginning of the play and movie Fiddler on the Roof, where somebody asked the rabbi, Rabbi, is there a blessing for the Tsar? And the rabbi says, yes, may God keep and the God, keep the Tsar far away from us. And um, you know, there's, there is a blessing for everything, but our, our ultimate food blessing is a blessing over bread. And we say, Blessed are you, God, who brings forth bread from the earth. Well, God doesn't bring forth bread from the earth. God helps wheat to grow. But humans are in partnership with God in making, turning that wheat and tilling those fields and turning that wheat into bread. And so with environmentalism and with the environmental ethic, we're God's partners. It's hand in hand. And we have been given, you know, you might say dominion, um, mastery of this planet for now, um, for as long as humans have been around for the past couple hundred years, hundred thousand years. Um, but it's, we're stewards and we have to protect this planet and partner with God to, to make it a better place and not desist from improving the world one generation at a time. So the nature of that dominionism, that mastery, that stewardship, uh, sounds like what what I hear it sounding like is bringing the best out of the earth, helping the earth to be uh, all that God dreams for it to be. Just with that example of the wheat, right. um, but but I'm but I'm curious about that. If you could expand on that a little bit more, because mm -hmm. one of the things that is um, um, a constructive challenge, I guess you could say, is looking at this idea of anthropocentrism. Mm -hmm of humankind being the center of the universe. And that unfortunately is a lens through which if, if we, if we see dominion through that, then it can be seen that, well, then humankind can do whatever it wants. Uh, doesn't matter if, if, uh, that dominion means that the earth is not living to its full potential. It's all about us extracting whatever we can, whatever we want. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about looking at it through an anti-anthropocentric lens, if that's something that's even possible to do, or if there is a way to look at dominionism through a lens of anthropocentrism that is not so <laughs> narcissistic, right. I guess. Anyway, I don't know if you could help me with that or if that even makes sense. Yeah, no, it, it does. And, you know, I think that, I think that it's, it is, the, any religious traditions are, are human focused, right? They they're, they're not religions for the whales and the dolphins, uh, but you know it's it's our job, according to my understanding, to to maintain the basic balance to this order of creation. We have this ideal of trying to bring the world to this Garden of Eden place. And you know that's only through the appropriate stewardship of resources. In near the verses we're going to be looking at today in, in Genesis, it, the Torah teaches that God gave fruit-bearing plants and to, to humans to eat. There, there was no permission to, to eat animals at that point. That didn't happen until after the flood and Noah, where humans began eating meat. The ideal is vegetarianism. Hmm. Okay. That's the ideal. Uh, just out of curiosity, and I'm not trying to be uh, convicting in any way, 
Are you a vegetarian? I'm an aspiring vegan. I'm, I'm vegetarian. I, 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 I do occasionally eat dairy and, and eggs um, and occasionally a pescatarian, but I would love to be a vegan. Yeah. Yeah. So to what extent is that rooted in your faith, if not exclusively? It's, it's not exclusively. It's also just about humane treatment of animals. And, you know, I, I understand what happens in the meat, dairy and poultry industries. Um, and so, but yeah, there's also about this ideal from the first chapter of Genesis too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's easy to keep kosher. You know, if I, if I don't eat meat, I don't have to worry about two sets of dishes or um, waiting a certain amount of time between meat and dairy. It makes, it makes life so much easier. I can eat whatever I want, whenever I want. I mean, within my, within my rules. So did you, um, growing up and, you know, through adolescence and into young adulthood, did you look at the environment, uh, through the lens of the creation stories? You know, did you look at the environment as creation, as God made this? Um, or was that something that could be kind of compartmentalized where, I can keep my spiritual life over here as a Jew, but once I go outside and I'm in nature or the environment, whatever we human beings want to call it, I, I can, I can, I can leave that back in the synagogue, if you will. No, I think it all ties together. You know, I don't believe in the literal seven days of creation, but the seven days of creation follows a, a geologic path quite nicely you know and and I, I feel like there had to be something before the big bang or the big bounce 13 so billion years ago um and when i'm out hiking in the sierra i i thank god for the wonders of nature there's there's a blessing for seeing wondrous objects uh blessed are you lord our god who has created the, who, who creates the creations of creation, basically from the beginning, that, that there are these, these wonders that God is continuously creating, that you know, we've had periods of glaciations that carved out Yosemite Valley, for instance, and have built up the, the Sierra Nevada and you know, give us this amazing planet that we live on. So being reminded of creation and, uh, what what another person that we have interviewed for this edition, um, Dr. Norman Worsbo would say would call our creaturely identity mm. is something that's really healthy through what you just described. Um, I'll call it a spiritual hike and yep. saying prayers like you just said, because it reframes um, uh, not only what's around us, but our belonging to it, our relationship with it in a way that doesn't just say, Oh, this is, this is nice. This is, this is serendipitous, or this is a right. getaway, right? Worse yet that it's a getaway because it's supposed to be a constant reminder of mm -hmm. creation and our belonging to it. Um, so I wanted to ask you about that too, with uh, something that I came across in listening to this podcast on Jewish studies, mm -hmm. asking that question about whether there's an environmental ethic in Judaism. Um, help me with the pronunciation. Tu Bishvat? Tu Bishvat, yeah, good job. I, I try, I try. But it was suggesting that Tu Bishvat is uh, Judaism's environmental holiday or Earth Day for Jews. Right. Tell me a little bit more about that because I'd never heard of this. 
Yeah, so Tubishvat, the, the name itself just means the 15th of the month of Shvat. Um, and this is the new year for trees. There are a number of new years in the Jewish tradition. Uh, you know, probably most of our listeners are familiar with Rosh Hashanah, the, the new year when we transition to the uh, the new number of the year. Um, there's also New Year for Kings and New Year's for Tithing Animals. Um, but Tubishvat in the late winter is the new year for the trees. And this is how you count the age of, this is tree's birthday. And when I lived in Jerusalem for a year, it was amazing that on or right around Tubishvat is when the almond trees started blossoming and the olive trees. And it was just a, a beautiful sight. Um, and now Tubishvat has taken on more of a environmental twist and it's, it's celebrated with a special Tubishvat Seder where different foods and nuts are eaten representing different aspects of the earth. And it's, it's a beautiful holiday. Um, and uh, this, this year, it, it happened in late January. And every year, it, of course, moves around based on the Hebrew calendar. Is this So if it's something newer, this is not something that you grew up with? It was Shvat. Um, no, I, I remember back even into religious school as a kid that there was you know, some kind of tree, planting tree celebration going okay. along with it. But it's, the environmental twist is definitely newer. Okay. All right. Something within that is, and I know I can't pronounce this right. Baltachit. Baltachit. Baltachit, yes. Okay, I'm not going to try again. You can do it much better than me. Um, but that it uh, prohibits wastefulness and destruction. Yeah, the mitzvah, uh, the divine commandment to not destroy. And uh, this comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 20, where uh, the Torah talks about if you have to lay siege to a city, you can, um, you can eat of fruit-bearing trees, but you cannot cut them down. And what I really like from, verse, uh, from chapter 20, verse 19, where it has its own commentary in the Torah, are the trees of the field human to withdraw before you into a besieged city? You know, like it's asking this rhetorical question. Now, of course, the trees can't take shelter behind the city wall. So who are you to cut them down? Like trees have feelings too. Trees are people too. So um, later on, later in the tradition, it uh, comes to prevent and prohibit wanton destruction of anything, household goods, clothing, food, just any unnecessary destruction at all. Yeah, I, I like that verse a lot too. Um, Deuteronomy 2019 are the trees of the, this other translation of it, are the trees of the field people that you should besiege them? Mm. And I was reading that in a way where not only with what you just said about, hey, they can't take shelter, leave them alone. Mm -hmm. they got yeah. It also kind of speaks to that idea of the Anthropocene where I, I almost hear it like um, human, humankind shouldn't be placing itself above trees or assuming that they're better than trees. Um, are the trees of the field people that you should besiege them? They, you, they, they're better than you, right. almost. I mean, it's it, you can hear it. I, I can hear it that way. And it also kind of ups the ante on taking care of the biosphere, taking care of the environment, mm -hmm. when um, if you're not to cut down trees during wartime, 
which I also came to understand is something that we um, is shared with um, our Muslim siblings with Sharia law. If you can't cut down trees in wartime, then what about when we're not in wartime? It's got to be all, all the more so, or, right? Right, yeah. right. Sorry, T tell me more about that. I was curious if that was an ethic. Um, but that outside yeah. of wartime, it ups the ante. I, that's how I heard it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we have this concept of a uh, kalva chomer that, like, all the more so. You know, if you can't cut down trees in wartime, all the more so should you not cut down trees when it's not war. All the more so should you not just toss out extra food. Should you not, you know destroy things that don't need to be destroyed reduce reuse and recycle yeah yeah okay do would would um would a reading of an understanding of tubishvat now look at the way that we are uh treating the earth our relationship with the earth and and um and feel that we're doing enough I'm thinking about this with this, you know, our our children's generation. Right. You have a uh, 13 year old, 11 year old. Mm -hmm. I have a uh, soon to be 17 year old and 14 year old, and they, you know, my my son, for example, the the the, the soon to be 17 year old will say, "Can I recycle this?" And if we tell him no, that can't get recycled, he goes, "Why not? Mm -hmm. I don't understand. Why can't I?" Right. So back to my question, is Tubishvat being observed adequately or can we do better? I think we can absolutely do better. I, there's no greater crisis to humanity right now, and there's a lot of crises, um, than climate change. And we should be observing Tubishvat every single day. Um, not just in Baltashkit and making sure we don't destroy, but also reducing and fighting to reduce emissions. And you know, we're, we're on this path of destruction for humanity. The Earth will survive. The Earth is going to last for billions of more years. But will humanity? And I think God has put us on this Earth to find this balance, to find a role where we can use the Earth's resources and not abuse the Earth's resources. Um, so I, in addition, one of the additional irons in my fire is that I'm a, a lecturer in geography. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I teach my students when we're talking about human geography that you know, humans have been living in cities and having writing and careers and cubicles just the last 10,000 years. But we've been around for 200,000 years. So 95% of human history, we were hunters and gatherers living you know, in balance with nature, not over-exploiting the resources around us, but just living off the land and having balance with the, the plants and animals around us. Okay. And it's only in the last 5% of human history that we've been, and even much less than that since the Industrial Revolution, where we've just been going crazy and over-utilizing the Earth's resources. So, so in the last 5% of human history with the Industrial Revolution and how it just, everything changed for the worst, what what changed fundamentally what changed do you think mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. why could we go from from such a long rich history of belonging relationship right. good stewardship of the earth to this what, yeah. what happened well one theory is that wheat domesticated us 
and uh, became a, you know, wheat has done a very good job of becoming a, a very powerful species on our planet and corn as well. And uh, here we are kind of serving at the mercy of corn and wheat, doing its bidding, propagating it and uh, making it thrive to be one of the most important species on our earth. Um, so yeah, what, what happened? What did corn do to us? Right? It's that uh, high fructose corn syrup that, that got into our blood. Um, but you know, I, I, once we turned from being hunters and gatherers to settling in cities, you know, we just started using those resources. Change your perspective. Yeah, right. and, not, and not thinking about what, what this means long-term. And here we are with, with our cars and our airplanes and our, our fossil fuels. And we, we have but a, a few years to, to figure out where we're going to go from here and how we're going to protect our planet for our children and our children's children, truly, with right. sea level rise and everything else that's happening. It gets more and more urgent. And it just seems that um, the more we talk about it and the more statistics we point out, mm -hmm. it's... Uh, it all makes sense. It's logical, yeah. but it's also right. very abstract. The more mm -hmm. that it, the more that it becomes particular, the more it becomes something that uh, does affect you. Something that you can be as we're as I'm continue to say, you know, more in relationship with. Right. Then, yeah, it can affect your view. And mm -hmm. this is something where uh, we can't change behavior until our view is changed. Right. And and this doesn't affect just Jews or Christians or, or Muslims or, or any other group on the planet. It's, it's affecting us all. This climate change knows no boundaries and it's, it's coming for us. Yeah. So there's a lot of really good interfaith cooperation opportunities here, my friend. Yeah, there should be. There should be. <laughs> there really should be. Right. Uh, well, on that note, just out of curiosity there in Sacramento, are there such efforts because there certainly aren't in here here in Bryan College Station I'd, I'd like to get some hope if there are interfaith <laughs> relationships toward this effort uh, probably not enough I, I'm not aware of any um, but it might be something worth starting okay good that can be your inspiration well um to, to kind of move to a, a conclusion with our conversation I wanted to you know, ask about a little bit more personal stuff. And let me set it up like this. Mm -hmm. We've been talking about change of view, change of perspective. Mm -hmm. It's uh, in the in the New Testament of the Bible, or I should call it the Second Testament. Um, there's this Greek word metanoia, mm -hmm. which means, you know, a change of heart or change mm -hmm. of direction. And it has to do with our perspective, our view, how you see things. And... Um, uh, how we see the world uh, directly is going to affect how we treat it. Right. And so over time, I have had a metanoia when it comes to how I see the earth. Mm -hmm. And um, I, like you, it's not exclusively rooted in my faith, but a lot of, a lot of how it is that I treat the earth is rooted in my faith. Why do I um, have the diet that I have and strive to have, the principles that I have when it comes to conservation, um, to protecting the biosphere, to mm -hmm. raising awareness about this? 
it's rooted in seeing the world as creation, which is very much a faith imperative. So right. with that metanoia for you, mm-hmm. um, is, is that something that has always been a part of your practicing Judaism or has it been something that has been a kind of metanoia, something that has been over time you being able to see the earth through this lens of faith um, where you're able to incorporate it as a piece of um, a piece of your Judaism. Hmm. I think it's gradually developed over time. I mean, my undergraduate degree is in geography. Um, I didn't get outdoors in college um, and beyond as much as I do now. And I think me being outdoors and also teaching geography too, and studying Judaism in Los Angeles, as I did being in California, um, really helped with all of that and led me to where I am today. And working to definitely reduce and consumption of, especially during the pandemic, all these disposable products has just been heart-wrenching. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's it's been a it's been a process that combines my my faith with my also observation and and work as a scientist and human with everything being so heavy that we're talking about Mm -hmm. my last question's got to be what gives you hope or where do you get your hope my hope in the the fact that that humans are are creative and we can come up with solutions and there are answers to climate change and to the problems we see on our planet Um, and i i have i have faith that my children's generation and their children's generation will will do better um i see this this long long arc reaching towards um towards the betterment of the world Amen. Okay, my friend, thank you, Rabbi Matt Rosenberg, for being with us on All Creation and talking with us about dominionism and uh, giving us a boost of hope in how we can move forward. It's good to be with you, my friend. Good to be here. Thank you.